Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. One phrase comes to mind, it's easier to become what you're fighting. That's the problem with death instinct per se, is that you just reduplicate the problem in fighting it. You know, if we had to describe Paul, Paul's not suffering from a guilty conscience, but what Paul describes is that as he excelled in the law, as a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, that is, that he's completely identified with the symbolic system of the law. As he excels in his keeping of the law over anyone else, you know, over all his contemporaries, he, he, the way he describes it, he's also describing his own entry into evil that my excelling in Judaism caused me to persecute the church. He's killing Christians. We know at least Stephen and probably more. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul is the chief of sinners, not because he's not keeping the law, but because in his own mind he is keeping the law. He's excelling in the law. He's justified in what he's doing. Think of Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. You know, when we get to the real hideous forms of evil, it's not so much a transgressive relationship to the law. It's the use of the law for the destruction of other people. Now, Matt, you might want to jump in here and say, wait a minute. And and even with Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, there is some debate about what's true and not true there. There's actually a new documentary coming out about Eichmann. You know, he presents himself as kind of an idiot, uh, a simple bureaucrat. And what they're saying in this new documentary, well, that's that's the persona he wanted to present. And, and they have tapes of him describing what he did in the death camps. He liked his work. This is the radical evil. You think the guards in the death camp didn't enjoy their work? Do you think the sadist doesn't enjoy his sadism? He uses the law as a means of enjoyment. That's getting sick, right? That's a radical kind of evil. That's the worst kind of evil. I think that that's what Paul is describing about himself. That is that there is an underside to the law in this reification of the law in which we encounter the darkest form of humanity. So when we're talking about what Christ is doing, I think it is in conjunction. I'm just this is all here in Ephesians 2 and I'll lay it out here in a minute, but and it is conjunction with this punishing evil underside of the law. But we've got to get the word right. The katargatai is not the abolishing of the law but it's suspending the punishing effects of the law. The law is not really the problem. It's the orientation to the law. It's not male and female that's the problem. It's not Jew or Gentile. It's the orientation in which that identity is reified and absolutized. We completely would interpolate ourselves into the legal system we would inscribe ourselves into the law, that we would completely identify with the law. And I think what what is being described is obviously a loss of love and, and the dark side of evil. So what Christ does is suspend this relationship to the punishing effects. And I maybe I didn't explain the law. The law is just the symbolic order. It's just language. It's what we always do with symbol systems whether it's nationalism or and this is the stuff this is where Wittgenstein is handy because Wittgenstein in the linguistic turn is saying that it, I'm quoting Wittgenstein he says the best picture of the soul is the body this is exactly where Lacan and Zizek are landing that is what is that kernel what is the deepest kernel inside of you what is that thing in your unconscious that we can get a hold of. 
It's no great mystery. Guess what it is? It's the biological body. And it's the body that reveals the unconscious. You know, Wittgenstein is just saying, language is embodied. You don't learn language apart from enculturation or socialization. The body and the, the, the flesh are integral to what it means to be a speaker of a language. We don't know what a lion, this is Wittgenstein's illustration, we can't put ourselves in the, in the mind of a lion or a dog because of the in nature of our own enfleshment. We know what that is. And of course, this is over and against the Cartesian understanding. It's really over and against the Platonic understanding. I think it's really over and against the Augustinian understanding in which there is a duality between the mind and, and the body. That's there in Paul. Paul's talking about this split in Ephesians 3, right? The beginning of the chapter. He says, my mind and my body. You know, he does the same thing in Romans 7. The law of my mind, the law of the body. He's talking about a duality, but not as a reality, but as a lie. Um, and what is going to happen in Christ is that we're going to be unified. So the peace and unity that we're talking about, certainly it's that corporate unity inclusive of Jew and Gentile, but it's also a unity within ourselves. In other words, the peace, I think, begins with us. It's not that we can achieve that peace apart from incorporation into the body of Christ. It's the simultaneous thing. I think that accords with Wittgenstein, that accords with Noam Chomsky's picture of language. You know, this is the philosophical linguistic revolution, but this is also the scientific. This is the paradigm shift in linguistics brought about by Noam Chomsky. Chomsky is, you know, right now he's kind of known as the his politics, you know, his radical left-wing politics, but Chomsky was a linguistics professor at MIT. He just changes up the whole field of linguistics. Prior to Chomsky, they're talking about language as an evolutionary, you know, that the caveman, <laughs> as if you could grunt your way into grammar. Chomsky's point is you can't do it. You can't account for the, the grammar that a child has to have in order to learn a language. In other words, what a child is doing, it's, it's in accord with Wittgenstein. The child is enculturated into a particular language and society and the deep grammar is then universal there's a universal deep grammar enfleshed in the child and enfleshed in a twofold sense it has to be there in the mind in the brain i you know chomsky's going to talk about a black box but then it ha it it is plugged in in the particular language the child hears i'm going to give you three terms i'm going to ask you are they linked the first word is just words, vocabulary, which construct or build up mental concepts. And the mental concepts relate into the physical, our physical bodies. Yes, no? Yes. Language is not strange for us, but, but understand that it, it's a huge leap, you know, to, to take a symbolic, a sound, and attach it to a thing. Where does that come from? That's the grand leap. How do we do that? The danger in the in your picture, you what your three it was words, images, words, mental concepts, and physical our body. They have to all three be interconnected. In other words, you can't. What well, our tendency <clears throat> will be to say the mental image is the primary thing, as if you can have a mental image apart from your body. This is what Wittgenstein is taking on. Wittgenstein. In, you know, there's two Wittgensteins. There's part one of Wittgenstein, and then there's part two. And you have to be careful when people say, oh, yeah, I'm Wittgensteinian. Because in Great Britain, what that often means is, oh, they really like the first part of Wittgenstein, the uh, Tractatus, but they think that second part is just nonsense. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Wittgenstein is more or less rejecting, you know, depending on how you interpret Wittgenstein. But uh, he pictures languages. First of all, he's saying that tra in the Tractatus, 
that language is built upon the, the picture in the mind. This is kind of Platonic. This is Cartesian. And he rejects that. And, and this is the, you know, philosophical investigations. This is Wittgenstein, too, that he's saying that there is no mental image apart from embodiment. And so that it's a key thing. It's a key idea. And you can't dispossess people of this notion. Really, Jim, you've hit upon it. Because this is the thing. Some people will just argue with you till they're blue. And you can't really refute them other than to say, take a child. And this is this has happened historically. You know, the, the wolf children. Take the child, throw him out with the wolves. What language does he start to talk? Not like Mobley in Jungle Book. He talks wolf. And so the wolf children bark and crawl on all fours. In the Philippines, there was the chicken girl who was raised, you know, they put her in a chicken shed. She <clears> thought it was, she was a chicken. The child plugs in, embodies, you know, imitates, if we want to put it that way. I know this is oversimplifying it, but I think we've all read stories of someone has, someone's been diagnosed with a disease and they have the six months to live and they just wrap up all their stuff and sell it or whatever and get on a cruise and then they find themselves recovering. I know I'm, I'm really oversimplifying, but they, they tell themselves, they start playing different tapes and it affects their, you know, their mind affects their body. I, I'm not going as far as self-talk can cure you of everything, but I think, I know I've read a, a few stories along that line. Yeah, what we're describing in Freud is the talking cure. What we're describing in Christ is the logos of Christ, the Trinity. The Trinitarian relation is going to undo this dynamic of the of death in the individual. I think that's what Paul is saying. There's this dynamic including three parts, the law, the ego, and death, the body, the physical body of death. He's not referring to flesh per se. We're hitting upon already a refutation of Platonic thought, a lot of philosophical thought in its privileging of the image, in its privileging of a disembodied language. Uh, as if there is that possibility. I mean, God has that possibility, but we're not God. So what we are is creatures. I think you have to say both things. We are creatures made for immortality, but we're not innately immortal. But what happens with this, the, you know, if you take Wittgenstein's point here and reverse it, you give it a Cartesian twist, and you separate the soul from the body, that gives you the Platonic Christianity, but it also gives you that that's actually most religion. Most religion, most thought is is a kind of disincarnate thought. That's my part one, and that's just to set us up to get ready to read Ephesians chapter two, because I think that's what has to be in place to understand how it is that, you know, what it is that Paul is First of all, he is working with a Hebrew understanding of language, of what a human being is, and it's very much embodied. But what I've just described is also a Jewish problem in that the symbolic order of the law reigns supreme, and the biological order or the created order is written over and made to conform to this semantic load. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision. You know, think circumcision here. Boy, you don't get any more clear that it is the manipulation, the writing over, the symbolization of the flesh, circumcised, uncircumcised. There is a division in the body. You know, so it may refer to the corporate body, you know, of humanity, that there's Jews and Gentiles, male and female, but circumcised or uncircumcised, you're talking about an imposition of the law on the biological body, so that the kernel of the unconscious, you know, what we don't have access to, is that which is God's good created order. This is easy, you know, we all know that female, I, I felt this very strongly in Japan, you know, when you say female, are we just referring to gender? Oh, that probably has very little to do with gender when you understand the cultural imposition that is put upon people. You know, in, in Japan, female submissiveness, passiveness, but even more than that, I'm illustrating more than you want to hear, 
but the whole psyche, this is Takeo Doi, is saying it's structured around mother, and it's called Amayaru. Do you know about this, Jim? I've heard conversations about it and read a little bit about it. It's the indulgence of the mother for the child that is definitive of the person's subjective. In other words, mother, feminine. Man, we've just we just blown this till till this is the we've reified the very notion of the feminine. I think I've seen a just one book like that thick just over this. Yeah, yeah. Idea. There's a whole there's a whole body of literature. Uh, a lot of novelists, you know, looking for mother. They're all in search of the, the, the mother. Doi explains it. Let me, uh, this is kind of worthwhile. You know, how do you return to your mother? What is the ultimate indulgence of the mother? Wouldn't that be to take an end to the womb of the mother? But who is mother? Who is my true mother? Isn't it mother nature, mother earth? And as I return to Mother Earth in my own death, I finally achieve the oneness of love that I've been searching for my whole life. I'm united to my mother. I've achieved a my, a my, you know, she, I've been a myadud. I've been indulged. And now I can feel the warmth of her embrace in the grave. It's just, this is a, a a key understanding. I need to qualify all this. This is the way Japanese think. Now, why did they think this way is the question. Part of it is because Takeo Doi taught them to think this way, but part of it is no, it's actually there in the in the culture. What I've just described is Freud's death drive, right? Death <laughs> is salvation. Death is true love. My dissolution, my undoing, is the culmination of all that's good and meaningful in my life. Do you think that that might be connected to, I mean, just the ethos in Japan? But of course, understand that Doi is just reworking Freud. And Freud has diagnosed the West with this very disease. In other words, Freud is privileging death. This is, I think that that is an example in one form or another of the human disease. That in some way, death becomes the answer. And this is, you know, this is tricky because Zizek, who calls himself a Pauline atheistic materialist, is going to say the th same thing about the death of Christ. The death of Christ saves because death saves. He's an atheist. He knows he's playing a trick here. But I think I could almost get up on Sunday morning and preach a sermon, and no one would notice. Whether I was preaching a demon from hell could preach this gospel, and it sounds like the truth for a lot of Christians, because they've done with the death of Christ what we would do with death in general we would make it salvific. Death is not salvific. That's not the point of the death of Christ. This is the human sickness and our tendency toward death. You know, in the East, in Japan, I, this is my problem with, with so much Buddhism and uh, that, it, that it does just openly reify, deify death. I think Heidegger is guilty of the same thing, death and nothingness. This is my point with creation ex nihilo. So this is the enmity. This is the, the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. He's describing this antagonism, this death drive that we have with one another, Jew, Gentile, male, female, but the law of the mind, the law of the body, and it's this enmity. I think we could talk about this enmity being abolished, but, of course, you don't abolish the enmity by abolishing the law. You abolish the enmity because you understand that a conformity in which death reigns, controlled by the prince of the power of the air, is the very power of evil that is defeated in Christ. That we can defeat the lust of the flesh. You know, why lust of the flesh? Is it because we shouldn't desire food, sex, and sleep? No, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with those. Those are perfectly fine. We need those, but those can become 
an overwhelming desire because of the load of meaning put upon it. Can you rewind a conformity in which death reigns? I was quoting Paul there. This is up in 2.2. Two. You know, he he's talking about that we are it, within the world, we're controlled by the world, we're shaped by, and then he mentions the prince of the power of the air. In 2, 1 to 3, he speaks of the lust of the flesh, and then he talks about mind-body, or uh, spirit, or rather spirit-mind duality. And so this conformity to the world, I think is he's using language here that I'm trying to tap into and fill out. We've touched upon what this conformity amounts to, how it's connected to the law, how it's connected to the lust of the flesh, and how it's addressed in Christ. We in can, other words, I, what I'm trying to do is get away from, I'm afraid we could rele read Ephesians 2 and just chalk it up to religious language like and pretend like we all know what we're talking about, and actually we're not saying anything. I'm trying to give it an interpretive understanding in which we can, uh, the point of the cross, the point of the life and death of Christ, is that he in fact does do away with evil. He's, he's defeating evil. And I'm trying to, to say how. I'm trying to put make this concrete. There is an antagonism. There is this sacrificial economy that predominates in the human psyche, in human culture, in human religion. You know, we sacrifice, uh, our, our very own self-relationship is sacrificial. The problem is that in so much Christianity, We've privileged this sacrificial system and reinforced it in penal substitution that we've made the problem the solution. And we've not named the problem that Christ is addressing. We just repeat the problem in our Christian understanding. Now, surely I'm wrong and I'm saying too, this is too strong, but. I'm following you, but I'm going to ask one or two authors that unfold this and just the last five minutes. Brian, do you have any recommendations? Paul Axton. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a book. Yeah, I do. The, my book is The Psychotheology of Sin and Salvation, in which I spell this out. I've got that. Yeah. I honestly don't know. I, I mean, this is partly why I'm tying in Walter Wink. I think Wink gives us a very practical guide. And I, I don't mean to be egotistical here. I, I just honestly, I don't know where to point you. Uh, Marcus Pound is somebody that I quote a lot. The problem is that anybody else that I found that has dealt with the psychoanalytic literature, they have not done what I've done with it. I've done a very simple thing. It's a very simple step I'm making. I'm saying that Zizek, Freud, and Lacan are describing the problem that Paul and the New Testament describes as the lie and deception of sin. And by the way, Zizek doesn't draw back from that. He just says, yeah, this is sin. Lacan says that. So it's not like I'm imposing anything on them. They understand it. They'll even talk about it as evil. But for them, the, the good arises from the evil. So somebody like Marcus Pound, who is quite I think profound. Unfortunately, he wants to conform Christianity to a Lacanian psychoanalytic understanding. I think you miss Christianity because the lie of sin that is the death drive, that is this subject controlled by sin and death, is undone in the life of Christ, and we can describe how it is undone, that it's no longer you know, the Oedipus complex, is that's, that sounds strange, but all it is, it's that superego-ego relationship, the punishing father. Think of the Cartesian cogito. I think, you know, there's the thinking thing, and then there's the thought, there's the split. Uh, and, and it's in my thinking that I achieve, I think, therefore I am, therefore I, I achieve being. That is, we would be our own father, uh, is what Freud is saying. And what I know, I know that doesn't sound like anything conscious, but when we cry out, Abba, Father, in Christ, through the Spirit, 
I believe it is a direct counter dynamic. It is a fill a filling in of this lie. I'm talking. I'm describing a lie. I'm not describing the truth. This is a deception. But I see sin. You know, that's primarily. I think it is. We're deceived. We've fallen. How have we fallen? Well, I think I just described it. Not so much that historically there was the fall, but we can describe the fall as on a continuum that we all kind of experience this fallenness, this failure. But understand also that where who's lying, who's telling the lie, and who's believing the lie? Oh, you are. In other words, it's not like somebody has foisted this, you know, So what I'm also describing is the possibility of freedom of choice. This was my point in in my blog today, that we are actually co-creators with God as it was meant to be in the dominion mandate in the garden. But the thing that we are now participating in most intimately is the creation of ourselves. That is creation ex nihilo. We're arising. We, what I've just described ain't nothing. Well, that's bad English. It's a double negative. It's nothing. That is, the nothingness of the ex nihilo is the opening to evil that is a shutting out of the life that is God, that is the spirit, that is true being. You know, we, we are co-participants in, in who God is. So I'm just going to say this is the first time I've heard this put on the table, so to speak, that I've been able to actually see it or hear it or see the outline of it. Oh, good. I hope it becomes clear. I, I'm never, I lose track of what's obscure and not obscure. And I know the language is strange and, you know, this, this way of talking is strange. But let me, let me suggest the, the real strangeness to it is actually quite simple. And that is what I'm saying is Christ defeats sin, death, and the devil. And that's not usually the way we think of Christianity. That is, I'm trying to name the evil and tell you how Christ defeats it. We can actually say, what is evil? How does Christ defeat it? I know that that sounds too ordinary. Well, surely somebody's done this. Surely we can say, but I, I, you know, I think this is partly what Rene Girard does. I think he helps us in this. But I think this is I'm also going beyond what Girard is saying. So that that's uh, the Ephesians two. You know, Paul is talking about he's describing flesh acting according to its own principle. The the flesh. You know, this is Zizek. The the body that is rejected cannot be equated with the biological body. This is the the center of the unconscious. And so Christ is going to resolve in Ephesians 2, the divisions of the flesh or with the flesh, in his flesh. Problem's not a flesh problem. It's not a body problem. It's not nature over and against grace. There's nothing wrong with nature. Nature is graced. It's not Augustinian. It's, you know, if this is the theme, and I'm not saying it is the theme of Western theology, but I think we've all been in the West inducted into a theological understanding uh, that pits nature against grace, in which we just, we just imagine the problem is nature and natural things. And what I've said is, no, there, and I think what Paul, there's nothing wrong with nature. That's God's good creation. There's nothing wrong with what's natural about us. No, what's unnatural is what sin is. Sin is unnatural. The futility, the lie that Paul talks about, the deception, that's the problem. Not anything that God has done, but this twistedness, this perversion. And, and you know, you, uh, the perversion is just there for us to see. So Paul describes a a resolution, a present tense resolution, that uh, we've been raised, you know, resurrection is the answer to the problem of death, because sin is an orientation to death that we take up into ourselves. Ascension, you know, participation in the life of Christ, 
the division in the body is overcome. And Paul up above, he uses the phrase, the flesh, you know, or rather he, he talks about works of the law. You're not saved by works. He doesn't use the word flesh, but of course, I think he, in the rest of the chapter, he's talking about the flesh. The mark in the flesh is the work that we would do. And then he says, you're not saved by works, but you were saved for good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand. The good works for which we were created for is the predestination, wrong word, but the, the plan, God's plan from the foundation of the world. We were made for this workmanship. And what the danger is, we'd carve out a piece of the flesh and call that our good work. That we would reify uh, Jew, Gentile, male, female. The letter kills. And I think this is why the letter kills. The spirit gives life. This is Paul everywhere. 7, 1 to 3. You all have heard that before and know about. I think that's a neat illustration of how the law the misorientation to the law is an undoing of the possibility of love because of this problem that I've just described. Paul is saying that we've <clears throat> died and been joined to Christ. And so he's resolving the, it, it is a bodily problem. The Jews, the Gentiles, we all have a flesh problem but not because of our bodies, but because near, far, inside, outside, excluded, included, citizens or aliens. So Christ has undone that kind of, of gauge. If, you know, in Romans 6, he talks about the body of death. I think he's still talking about the body of death here, but the body of death is suspended, is undone, and we've been raised with Christ, the body of death, the law, death is brought to nothing, katargeo. He himself is our peace. Both groups, uh, he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier. What's the barrier? It's that antagonism. It is the law, you know, point blank. But of course, it's the law functioning in this antagonistic manner. He's abolished this antagonism in his flesh. Why his flesh? Why has Paul emphasized that? Well, precisely because Christ you know, has recapitulated, he's undone the enmity in his flesh, contained in the, you know, Paul says, the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. There's a new humanity that is not marked by the divisions of the law, not marked by the divisions of the symbolic order. And obviously it's not that he abolishes maleness or femaleness or Jewness or, you know, I, Paul still thought of him as himself as a Jew, but he also insists that you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. So he's suspending that symbolic order. He came and preached peace to who are far away and peace to you, those who are near. For through him we have our access in the Spirit. Spirit is an interesting word in Paul. Here it's obviously the Holy Spirit, I think, right? But Paul's going to use the word Spirit. This is kind of Hart's point. And there's ambiguity. This is actually, Hart is actually referencing Irenaeus. Irenaeus says this, when Paul uses, or when we see the word spirit, even in Genesis, when God breathed, what, what is that breath? Well, it's the breath of God. It's the spirit of God. So spirit is the life-giving force that is within us, that is completed in the Holy Spirit, and, of course, the squelching, and that's the thing about Irenaeus, and I think Paul is doing that here. He's describing how we can squelch life, spirit, God. Did I lose you on that one? Maybe the high point of, of uh, Ephesians is the picture of that he's joined the whole 
whole body uh, into a cosmic temple in whom the whole building being fitted together is being made to be a temple of God, growing into the temple of the Holy Lord, of the, of, uh, in the Lord in whom you are being built together in a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That is the squelching, the loss, the diminishment, the uh, turning away of the life is undone in this new temple of God that is, the, I think, the culmination of creation. This is what creation was about. This is the mark. This is the infinite destiny implicit in created experience. Christ is all in all. Christ is the summing up of all things. He is the recapitulation of all things. And so the goal, the incarnate logos, uh, in the reconciliation of God and creation affected through the hypostatic union, the God-man, of the uncreated and created, that is what creation, that was always creation's plan. Theosis, divinization. I don't believe there's any ontological ground for creation apart from that understanding. And part of that, I don't believe there's any ontological ground for us. See, that's really what I've described. What are we? Are, what, what is creaturehood? What does it mean to be a human subject? I believe that the only way of saying what a person is is to describe who we are in Christ. That is our ontological ground. But in that, all of creation then must partake of this ontology. I'm trying to think one little facet of the resurrection would be just a result or a, um, I'll use the word rebound, of this antagonism being dealt with or done away with or exhausted. So the resurrection would just be a natural reflex or a result. Yes, yes, that's it. Of, of, all, of all things, like when the ice, when the ice, during the ice age, all those glaciers came down and pressed on Canada and, you know, and then when they retreated, all that ground just like rose again. So I'm trying to put it yeah, in the, the 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 grave couldn't hold him. And he dies, but he is not subject to the power of death. He defeats death. And the meaning of the defeat of death, the whole picture I've given you, is a, a dynamic of death. So when Christ defeats death, it's not just our physical demise. In fact, I'm not sure that ha that's the prime thing. Uh, I think it's actually this dynamic for death. You know, when, he, when we talk about Abraham, it's really not Abraham uh, per se that is important or Abraham's physical death. It's all tied up with Isaac. Abraham, you know, if God said, slit your throat, Abraham, Abraham wouldn't care. It's not him. In other words, the physical death of Abraham per se is only part of the problem. The main problem is that Abraham is as good as dead. His whole life is a journey into death. Sarah's womb is dead. The dynamic of death dominates. The orientation to death could have shaped the life of Abraham such, you know, I think that's the, the temptation that he's, he's over and against. Uh, to trust in the promises of God in the face of death, which in Romans 4, Paul calls resurrection faith. So resurrection faith is this ability to face this dynamic that we're describing. And here I think this ties directly into Walter Wink, because the dynamic is just all around us in the domination system. That in Wink's terms, you know, Christ has abolished notions of redemptive violence. He's defeated the domination system in the family. Family's one of the most violent places there are. Patriarchy, diminishment you know, of, of women. It's a training ground. You know, Wink paints this, uh, that where the majority of women are murdered, where children are abused and battered, and men are endowed with the inalienable right to beat, rape, and verbally abuse their wives is in the family. The family is the symbolic order. It is the enculturation into this domination system. 
So once we, we have this idea, oh, we're talking about a power that is exercised on us individually and corporately, and we can begin to name this corporate power. You know, and he just goes through Jewish purity laws inside and outside. Oh, that's undone that Christ has has done away with the literally, he's done away with the purity laws. You know, I could you keep them and still be a Christian? I guess you could, but if you're saying that you can only be a Christian by keeping them, uh, the gender divide, male and female, this I'm just doing wink here, you know, that would secure identity. So that Jewish, you know, be to be a respectable man. This is why I kind of like the new, uh, the uh, chosen. Have you all seen that? Uh, it's the new Jesus film. They do a good job with this. You know, Jesus is he is dealing with women. Women come up and touch him. He talks to them. But all of that was a defying of Jew the way Jewish men treated women in public. Uh, you know, Jesus deals with. A, a prostitute comes in and washes his feet. The ontology or ground is nonviolence. Again, this is wink. In the place of hierarchy, division, domination, we have a system of equity. So that's that's what I, I, I think Ephesians 2 is very practical. But I think Christianity is meant to be very practical. That is that we can say how this thing saves. It is salvific. In our following Christ, we're saved. We're being saved. We're putting on salvation. So, in one sense, the resurrection, like, is a display of the nothingness of all these of the lie. The grave is empty. We would reify and deify the grave, either literally in a lot of religion, you know. We do this in our nationalistic religion when we, you know, that we actually inscribe, you know, we put on the grave of the unknown soldier or the tombs of the unknown soldier that he's done what Christ did by laying down his life in war. So there's a sense that Christianity gets caught up in the system of deifying death, reifying death. He's made the ultimate sacrifice. In a good samurai, in Japan, you know how you, you finally attain stability as a samurai? You die for your lord. In other words, the samurai who commits seppuku, or who, who is, dies in battle, this is very Muslim in some ways, you know, but it's there in, the, in the, the samurai system. Well, then you've achieved, you're part of the pantheon of the gods. You finally become a true samurai. Uh, but I think you could just repeat that in religion after religion, that we reify, we deify death. It may be quite blatant and literal, or it may be quite subtle, but I think that is the predicament that resurrection undoes, and that Christ seated at the right hand of God, and we're seated with him. There is a defeat of the domination system oriented to death. I guess going back to what you were just saying, so about how religion reifying or deifying death. So, I mean, what would we say about Christian martyrs though, then? That they're, like like Christ, they're undoing the category of death? I think step one is we have to define what a Christian martyr is. A, a Christian martyr is someone who faces, who dies because he's tortured or killed by, you know, and the reason he can do that yeah, you know, this is what origin, but I think there are that Christians were always martyrs in training because the witness, martyr, witness, dying for Christ, that was the greatest witness you could have because you face down the fear of death. But unfortunately, the word martyr has been watered down so that we talk about soldiers who go out and kill other people in battle as martyrs. You know, this is the debate about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, I, I'm not saying I have an opinion on the in it, but Bonhoeffer apparently, and even this is up for debate, tried to assassinate Hitler, and that's why he got hung. Is he a Christian martyr? Well, in the Hall of Martyrs, where is it in England? You know, they have the the martyrs. 
they they have Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But a, a, a true martyr is that martyr who is uh, not violently trying to, you know, slit the enemy's throat or blow them up. The martyr is one who submits. Paul, I think, is describing a form of radical martyr-like submission to Rome. They're going to kill him, just like they killed his Lord. But in dying the martyr's death, there is the undoing of the, the system of power. I mean, it's an undermining of that power. You can, if you're not afraid to die and you believe in resurrection, you in a, in a sense, you, you've stolen the primary power of the state. So, yeah, I think Christian martyrs are, I think that in that sense, that's what it means to be a Christian witness, is the capacity to face death. And, of course, if we've said death is the system, you know, as, as we all face it in some sense, most of us don't face martyrdom in, a, in the literal sense, but I think the capacity for facing death in martyrdom is a type of the Christian capacity for witness to expose the deception of the, de the system and the power of the, you know, what Wink calls the domination system. Um, it, it's interesting. Now, John Wesley was infatuated with deathbed scenes. He uh, he wrote something like 500 reports in his uh, Armenian magazine over his life, recounting for people how you should how Christians go about dying, how, how witnessing how Christians reconciled with their family before death and held on to their faith as they were dying. It was a very important part of his uh, of of his preaching and his witness, which is interesting. Oh, that is that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I I think that we've lost the the discipline. That's and that sounds like yeah. We should know how to die as Christians. Well, I'm sitting here thinking about Martin Luther King Jr. I can't think of any reason why he can't be called a Christian martyr in that. I mean, he was a pastor and his, his nonviolence, nonviolent resistance as a, uh, a movement and his, his resistance in general and his engagement with the powers as a Christian ending in his assassination. It seems to fit, but sure. it also, yeah, I hadn't thought about Bonhoeffer, but to 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 really think through, I I have in the back of my mind the whole time I'm listening here the connection with all of the, of all of this, even the psychoanalytic stuff to Constantinianism and the, the departure uh, way 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 back from that radical difference between church and society, uh, church and the powers church and authority uh, structures of, of empire. Yeah, of course, that Wink is speaking right in there about uh, about these things. I don't know if he brings up history like that and talks about Constantine, but certainly martyrdom sort of flips somewhere around that time to be like martyrs were more likely heretics being burned at the stake. or <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it is the path of following Christ's example, Christ's um, way of facing powers and and even facing suffering and abandonment and uh, isolation. I mean, when you follow that way, you could die from it. Uh, when you say the things based in Christ's authority that he said to the world, it likely is going to get you into trouble. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think Martin Luther King was a, was a martyr. Yeah. Why wouldn't he be? And I, I think that his power, I think he is a demonstration of the power that we're talking about. At some point he said, I'm not scared anymore. I mean, look at John Lewis. He, he didn't die from it, but these guys trained you know, to face down violence. I think what they're describing is they really did lose the fear. I think, you know, for most of us, it's just unimaginable that we could put ourselves in a situation like that. But I think that there is a, a point that the peace of Christ 
comes to dominate and and all fear is as the song says is gone yeah and i'm thinking about stephen uh when he was martyred looking up i can't remember what he saw exactly but he saw something in the clouds was it christ i yeah he saw sitting at the right hand of the father yeah yeah saw what paul says yeah yeah and this relates back to ephesians because christ sitting at the right hand of the father or and presumably us being seated there as well as paul says um this is that distinction between the, the seen and the unseen and the uh, and faith that faith is the agent there the the movement the motion the the drive when you're marching towards death right into the jaws of of a power that crushes bone and flesh possibly even with joy uh with you know you're choosing something because you know with the eyes of faith and seeing the seeing that bigger picture uh seeing that the heavenly blessings poured out this is this is a way of life that is totally worth it and i guess i can see that dispelling fear you know if you believe that believe it and and walk in it and see it time and again that god's faithful there's nothing that can hurt you there's no there's nothing that can take away what you have yeah when we're talking about cosmic salvation how far does that go in other words does that does that touch upon christian universalism i don't have an answer to the question but i think what we're describing is universal uh, for it to for this thing to hold together it, it is has to be cosmic it has to be universal it has to be all inclusive the the only space available for what it means to be created and a creature and human is within who god is so that if by universal that's what we mean i think that that is a clear teaching of the new testament now you, you want to talk about the details of that i don't understand how it is that i'm a hopeful universalist in terms of everybody being saved but i don't know how that could be i mean i'm, I'm not claiming i understand the mechanics of it i don't think uh, uh, universalism is not a theodicy in that i don't think we should make it an explanation for evil what I've just described, though, is an overcoming and defeat of evil. And I think that's more important. And so I'm willing to just land and say I'm a hopeful universalist. I don't comprehend the imagery, uh, all of the imagery or what it ma- might mean or the implications. I can't even, you know, I can't even work out how God makes everything right. But I think that, that we can say that what I what Ephesians is describing at least in the broadest terms, is universal, right? I mean, it's cosmic. It's all-inclusive. I I don't think that's a point of absolute doctrine or faith to say, oh, this is... uh..." I'm not not doing the Davy Bentley Hart thing here. I I think he is right that that there is a coherence and understanding in, in what we're describing that is a kind of universalism, that explains the defeat of evil. So that was why I wanted you to ask. I, th- I think it's a good question, and I think that's the, you know, what we're talking about is this corporate, all-inclusive space. I don't think there's room, for the, a kind of ontological space that's neither God nor, you know. I've come to believe that, no, the only thing that makes sense is all of creation given pr- giving praise to God in a full, being caught up completely and fully in who God is because that's for what we were created for on the incarnation by Athanasius he links salvation and being or salvation and ontology that that your very existence is hopeful that we have no ontological ground outside of Christ but that in some sense all creation still participates in yeah that I think that's basically what Athanasius was saying. The implications are if you if you exist, that one, well, there's hope for you. If you have ever existed, 
then there's some operation of God's saving work that has has been happening, is happening. And, you know, could that lead to universalism? I think so. I mean, I'm hopeful that it does, (laughs) that it will too. I like that. I was just listening to Hart again the other day, and I think the hopeful uh, universalist, he puts puts, uh, below the infernalist. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, sometimes you're like, you arrogant, you know, <laughs> SOB or something. But uh, and anyways, yeah, I think that's where I'm at, too, the, the hopeful universalist. I, I feel like theologically I've rejected the infernalist position. I've mostly, a lot of my Christian life, as John Stott introduced me to the annihilationist of course, that that has problems as well. So, golly, I don't know, Paul. I just wanted you to answer it so I knew what to say or think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be nice? I think certainly the origin metaphysics. You know, his description of the the end is in the beginning. End is in the beginning. This point of view that we get revealed in that uh, Paul talks about in Ephesians. Yeah, it's the opposite of the infernalist view that reality is is one and this timeline um, that we're in we encounter christ you see it in light of the end that you know all things are made new all things are in god can't really argue with that <laughs> yeah yeah the beginning is in the end the end is in the beginning i think david got i got at it i was just gonna clarify so from what i hear the picture that you painted then is one i think we talked about this in the john study too when we we're talking about dualism where there's in the cosmic salvation story there's not really room for hell as we commonly know it like as a internal it, it, eternal conscious torment but but whether or not we're capable of just not existing anymore of annihilationism is is the open question is that in the picture you're painting is that what i'm hearing yeah Yeah. it is it is and i i'm sort of like dave for much of my christian life i probably was an annihilationist but i'm also beginning to see a lot of problems with that in in the to allow for nothingness to reign supreme over god's good creation is almost to say that god's plan has been thwarted or defeated and so i see problems with that what's been really helpful for me i'm again i'm not sure where i'm at but up until i think it was the really the john class that you're talking about matt that i i thought man i keep hearing that term but i've never really gone deep with any of it and um i just had universalism as just one big whole blanket and you know didn't matter how you lived or what you did or whatever, but that's not what Origin and uh, the Christian Universalists are saying. I mean, they're they're saying Jesus is Lord, and we need to put ourselves under that lordship. And and then they would just extend that to say, at some point, every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess and say, whether it's this life or or in, in the age to come, every everybody in free, you know, with free will is going to to make that decision. the The tough part is, is as you, you know, as you uh, uh, think think through that, you know, you can make arguments that um, really you need to make choices in this life. I think we do, right? I think you know the the early church, you know, began to spread out that way. But you have to, I I really uh, wrestle with. I think in a good way is. is uh, John Caputo, definitely not coming from, I mean, he, he has a religious religious background, but he was talking about, you're a Christian, not, not because you, uh, he would say you're a Christian because you were born in a certain place. If you were born in the middle of Iraq, you'd be a Muslim. And, and his argument against sometimes about Christianity is, is, God's going to penalize us because, you know, we just grew up in the wrong place. Whoops, sorry about that. Sorry for your luck, right? You should have been born in America. Or, you know, you think about people who have gotten up, you know, maybe sexually abused in the church, 
And so they get a wrong perception of, of what Jesus and the church are all about. I finished reading yesterday, uh, John Bear, and um, he, I don't know if we, if he's a complete Christian universalist or not, but he definitely gives some choice after, after death too for, for those cases. It's cosmic. Yeah, it's cosmic. And so my question is, is how far does cosmic go? All means all, y'all. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm sympathetic with the working out the practical details, but maybe that's what I'm saying. I can't, I, I don't understand how the practical details may work out. But I trust that God is, you know, reigns all in all, and that 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 His righteousness is being established. I don't necessarily need to come up with the the mechanism, or you know how. Oh, that that happens at this point in purgatory or something. Paul, I gotta say, I I never really just poured over it and tried very hard to do it, but never really understood Romans seven. And you've helped me understand why. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> you mean I've, I've confounded the problem or I've helped it? No, you may, you, you, you've, <laughs> things fit so well. And, you know, talking about the cosmic and also kind of in the other direction, I guess, the, the psychoanalytic depths at which we can see the practical implications and it. The fact that it took as late in history as Sigmund Freud and others to to sort of see the with greater insight what was happening in Romans seven and sort of um, teasing that out it, it's just it's amazing uh, and I'm pa- I'm very patient with it but I'm I'm hooked with the with the pursuit of understanding more and more about it and as little as i've poured over romans 7 i haven't poured a whole lot of attention and study over your book as much as i have listening to you in our classes and podcasts and stuff talking about it and and, you know it's the repetition and the the coming back to it and the hearing it again i think that you know a a little piece makes sense over here a little piece over there and you know it emerges uh, to be an understanding that that even I can articulate one day, you know, and it's very hopeful and I I just appreciate it, you know, and I've heard it twice now this week. (laughs) And I'm saying that because it's very helpful to do it. And I sit here with maybe quizzical or puzzled looks on my face and don't say much for a while, but gosh, it really is. It brings a wholeness that I can't unsee it. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. I can't go go back or, or think that oh, this that you know this doesn't make this doesn't add up or something like that. No, I, I already think that it it does. I mean, it's something I I want to keep learning about, learning how to articulate. Um, and of course, I none of these other guys know it, I guess. But I'm I'm about to study uh, for a master's in counseling to go so I can. Uh, be like Lacan and uh, do 15 minute sessions <laughs> yeah. telling people how I can't help them <laughs> and drop them. No, I want to be able to, um, I've been a chaplain and I'm excited over the next couple of years to be entering uh, school to, to get licensed to practice, not psychoanalytic therapy, but, <laughs> yeah. but mental health counseling. And um, this really does help put, practical application and integration of theology with with real real world problems real world uh, divisions within us and within among the people around us so i just want to thank you and no i appreciate that how much it means and how how um, beneficial it is i appreciate that i'll i'll keep trying if i get it if it's helping yeah okay i appreciate that uh the feedback helps me because sometimes i look at you on it maybe i'm not but yeah to know okay you're getting that that's very helpful all right we'll uh we'll meet up tuesday and uh chapter three all right you guys thank you paul appreciate you guys
everybody. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.